0: So the writer to the Hebrews declares that Jesus is better, that his, Israel has been anticipating something that would become uh, better than what they're experiencing, either a kingdom that would be eternal or a prophet that would uh, reveal God in His fullness. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king. He's the true king, the perfect priest, the final prophet. He's the word. He's... The full revelation of God to us. And that's how we kind of begin the book of Hebrews. In the first three verses, we we dive straight into this incredible view of Christ. And then the writer begins to make comparisons between Jesus and these other institutions and these other, let's say, influential um, actors in the story of salvation. And the writer to the hebrews looks at jesus compared to the angels and shows how he is superior to the angels and i'll kind of read a quote just now that gives us a recap of what that um that sort of verse uh, 4 to verse 14 is like in hebrews chapter 1 and after comparing jesus to the angels the writer goes to the first kind of encouragement warning and says so this salvation has come through Jesus and we, we shouldn't neglect such a great salvation, we shouldn't disregard the Word of God, we should go deeper and deeper into it. And so Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 to 4 carries that, um, that kind of encouragement and we're going to continue from there today, but listen to how Andrew Abernethy of Wheaton College explains this. just wanted to read a quote from him here giving a summary of Jesus compared to the angels. The book of Hebrews opens by declaring that Jesus' ascension as Son to the right hand of the majesty in heaven reveals His superiority to angels. To defend this claim, the writer compiles a string of Old Testament quotations to expose how the Son's exaltation over angels accords with Old Testament expectations. Angels never receive the status of being God's Son, and they're expected to worship the Son. Also, the Old Testament expects that for there to be an everlasting kingdom with the Son in its midst, where all enemies will be under His feet. Such expectations are never associated with any angel. Thus, the Son's uniqueness in His status as Son and His dominion amidst an everlasting kingdom makes Him superior to the angels who are to worship Him. So that's kind of the ideas we've seen so far. Jesus' superiority to angels, His eternal reign that He's taken on since His resurrection. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's seated at the right hand of God in glory. And this is the salvation that we are brought into when we come to know Jesus. We enter into this kingdom that is a kingdom that will be eternal. And today we're going to walk through Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5 to 9. I won't read it right away, but in our passage today, the writer to the Hebrews is going to explain how instrumental Jesus' humanity was. This is very important for us to understand because in Jesus' own advent, when He came and He lived on earth... People didn't recognize who he was because he was human, because he'd taken on flesh. So they couldn't immediately see that this is God's Messiah, his Savior that he has sent to save us. Many of the Jews most rejected him, and yet he did signs and wonders and demonstrations of his authority. And we're going to go further into that today to see why his humanity was important. Because that is one of the key themes in Hebrews and for me it's one of the key themes in how I relate to Jesus is understanding him in his humanity but what it means for me what it means for us as human beings when you first meet Jesus in the New Testament you firstly see him in his humanity he was born to Mary and grew up as the son of a carpenter not a classy position he's like uh, not a rich guy in, a, in an elite family he's born to mary who's kind of an unknown and joseph who's kind of a blue collar worker like a factory guy you see the guys walking down the road to the factories that's probably the kind of the status that joseph and mary had in society to those seeking the spectacular jesus was very ordinary he was nothing like these ministering spirits, the angels who can appear and vanish without the limitations of the physical body. In fact, Jesus was just like you and me. And some people might see this as a kind of a, a disadvantage. I mean, most people are prejudiced in how they look at Jesus by his humanity. They they see him as a prophet maybe or a good man. And so, when you look at the world today, when you ask a a non-believer about Jesus, they probably just see the man. They probably think if he existed historically, then he was probably just some good person who did a few nice things for people, Uh, maybe he was some kind of a prophet. They don't see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's why even with Jesus' own disciples, he got to that point of, you know, people say this about me, people say, but who do you say I am, he asks Peter, and Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the Living God. It's a it's a moment of revelation that someone would actually see Jesus for who he is, truly, because his normalness actually hid him from the blind eyes around. So actually then we want to understand why did God do this? What was the point? Jesus' humanity was not a handicap or a limitation. Jesus' humanity is the very key to God's salvation plan. If you don't understand why Jesus came as human, you don't understand just how he saved you. And we're going to look at that. So his his humanity is really a very strong key to this and what you'll discover is as Jesus was the the better and final prophet, he's the better and perfect priest, he's the true and eternal king, he's also the final Adam, the second and the last, the final Adam, and he's the better Adam in his humanity. So let's read Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5 to 9. Hebrews chapter 2, reading from verse 5 to 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone that's our passage this morning and it's at least a good portion of it is actually a quote from Psalm 8 and I would say to you well in the grander theme of why the author's writing to these Hebrews, he wants them not to waver in their faith, he wants them to persevere and stand firm. So he's saying, if you would see what God's plan is, then you wouldn't be nervous, you wouldn't shake, you wouldn't wobble. So what we don't see, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he may, might taste death for everyone. So the idea is if you could understand Jesus' mission and the success of his mission and how you can relate to him in that then you wouldn't ever waver. You wouldn't want to go back to the law. You wouldn't go back to Judaism. You wouldn't go back to sacrifices in the temple. Nor would you abandon your faith and backslide. You would just stay, what do they say? Keep calm and carry on. it would be like, no, everything's going to be fine. And I love that because, you know, sometimes I think we've lost some of the um, militant, declarative, positive messages that we had in like the 80s. Worship songs or contemporary Christian music to become very sophisticated these days But it was very black and white in the 80s. They they just stated it like it was and there were songs We used to sing or at least listen to on cassette. If you don't know what a cassette is look it up on Google It was Like this one song we are destined to win It's like a really upbeat happy song and it just declares that we're destined to win but actually that's what the writer wants people to understand in this passage of scripture is that because Jesus is there, he is exalted. But because he was a man who was here for a while, He is actually going to lead us there. And so we can't lose. Yeah. That's like what the writer wants us to see, but I'm going to unpack it for you a bit more so that it becomes clearer. But if you had that in your mind constantly as a believer that you are destined to win, that you cannot lose. Why would you ever lose heart? Why would you ever give up? And this helps me because sometimes I fail, sometimes I look at my Adamic nature and I think, well, Adam, come on, why did you, why did you sin? Why did I be born into a, a, with a sin nature? And when will I ever be over this? And then this picture of Hebrews tells us it's just a little while. It's just for a little while. And so in verse six to eight of, of Hebrews chapter two, the writer quotes from Psalm eight. And I want to read Psalm eight, but I hadn't prepared to, but I do now. So I'm gonna quickly try to find a Bible here and look it up, it may or may not load. Otherwise someone else will have to do this for me. Let's just see. Have you got it there? Yeah. Psalm eight, I can't, maybe I can read my eyes. So that psalm talks about dominion over the earth and God being in dominion and how majestic is his name. It also talks about human beings and God making man lower than the angels, yet giving them this great honor. And it's it's an interesting psalm because it carries the it makes sense of what the writer wants to explain to us in Hebrews chapter two. But Hebrews actually also helps us understand Psalm eight better. You see, Psalm 8 is not simply a messianic psalm. A lot of people look at a psalm and they say, okay, this psalm is about Jesus. You can't do that with Psalm 8 accurately. If you do your exegesis correctly, you would start by saying, that psalm is actually about humanity. But then when you realize that the writer to the Hebrews is pointing out that this also applies to Jesus, you realize that Psalm 8 is also about Jesus. So Psalm 8 is about you and me as humanity, but it's also about Jesus. And so I want to read some more here that will explain this for you. It's an interesting psalm. It's about humanity as a whole and mankind, but also about the Messiah. And so um, a writer writes this. Psalm 8 verse 46 serves as a typological catapult for probing the implications of Jesus' bodily exaltation upon his ascension. So, basically, Psalm 8 is going to explore Jesus and how he went to heaven in a body, physically. For one, the claim in Psalm 8 verse 5 that humanity was made a little lower than the angels is affirmed and advanced upon. Yes, indeed, Jesus, along with humanity, was lower than angels in the present world. Since, however, the flesh and blood son is now at the right hand of God in majesty and supreme over angels, that's what Hebrews has just told us in chapter 1, Psalm 8 verse 5 cannot be the final word for human destiny. In other words, you've made him lower than the angels. But now Jesus is higher than the angels and he went there as a man bodily. So this writer is explaining, you cannot look at man's final destiny in Psalm 8. You have to see to where Jesus is now if you want to understand your final destiny. So yes indeed, Jesus along with humanity was lower than angels in the present world. Since however the flesh and blood son is now at the right hand of God in majesty and supreme over angels, Psalm 8 verse 5 cannot be the final word for human destiny. The next phase of the drama of which Jesus is the forerunner will position humanity who are the recipients of salvation with the flesh and blood Jesus in a status that is superior to angels. So that's the point. Psalm 8 is we were there but we're going to be there. The statement that humanity is crowned with glory and honor must be reframed in light of jesus through jesus suffering and atoning death he now is crowned with a glory and honor that is far greater than the glory and honor accorded to humans as god's rulers in this world so the writer to the psalm was thinking human beings were given such an incredible honor in the initial creation when adam was made because adam was given dominion over the earth The angels were not given dominion over the earth, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea, uh, the birds of the air. We see that human beings were given this incredible privilege to represent God, made in His image, and to rule over the earth. And so that's the glory and honor that was given to man. But with Hebrews in mind, we understand through Jesus, there is an exceedingly greater glory and honor that we are going to inherit And so that's part of the glory of this this quote. Let's keep looking at it. Thus, though humans have a level of glory and honor now, what Jesus has accomplished as the human son for God's human sons and daughters points to a far greater glory in Jesus and for God's children within the world to come. Third, Jesus' exalted glory invites us also to reframe Psalm 8's claim that God has put everything under their feet. In Psalm 8, verse 6, the term everything has a restricted range. Everything in the animal realm in the world today is under the feet of humanity. In Jesus, however, everything, in Psalm 8, becomes a token that points to a more extensive reality since angels and the world to come are now subject to Him. By implication though everything in a more extensive sense is not subject to humanity now, that's what Hebrews tells us, we do not now see everything in subjection. There is a flesh and blood son who does reign over everything and his human brothers and sisters will share in having everything subject to them in the world to come. So what this commentator is explaining is that jesus is effectively reigning now over everything and we are not but we will in him and we do if you look at the present tense of we are seated with christ jesus in heavenly places but our bodies yeah we are our status there it is our destiny there it is our life experience here and now isn't living up to what's yet to come but what's yet to come is already real for christ he reigns now over everything and this is what jesus demonstrated when he was on earth and i'm going to show you that thus the end of my quote last paragraph hebrews 2 reframes the theology of psalm 8 in light of jesus exaltation above angels and sovereignty over them in the world to come yes in psalm 8 humans including jesus in his own incarnation are a little lower than angels humans do have glory and honor humans do have everything in the animal realm subject to them there is, however more to the story due to jesus taking on flesh establishing himself as superior to angels in his ascension and ruling over the world to come humans will one day be superior to angels share in a far greater glory with jesus and will find all things subject to them alongside of jesus obviously everything that this commentator is explaining is only accessible in christ Humans only get that through Christ, by identification with Him in His death and His resurrection. But what you get in identifying with Jesus in His death and resurrection is a guarantee of a future reign and glory over all things. So here then is what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us. God made humankind, gave them dominion over His creation. The psalmist in Psalm 8 is marveling at that. He's saying, "Um, who is man? that you would be mindful of him, or the Son of Man, meaning his whole lineage, his descendants, any of this race of human beings, who are they that you would even think of them, but you've given them such privileges, you've given them dominion over creation. And we see God do this in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 to 28 we read, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the heavens and the livestock over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that was the the first blessing that we got in Adam. We would have had dominion over the earth. God has actually given us this responsibility to this day. We are supposed to be stewards of creation, caring for it, developing it, bringing out its potential to glorify God. But the dominion was limited to the birds and the beasts, the fields, the created realm that you see with your eyes. We know Adam and Eve sinned and lost dominion over creation. See, when I think of being in dominion over the earth, I don't really celebrate it much because it's really hard to train a dog. I mean, I just want my dog to bring the ball back and I cannot make it do that. I just want my dog to be obedient and I struggle so much to get that dog to obey me. I don't experience even much of the dominion that I was supposed to have thanks to Adam because he blew it. Because when Adam sinned, he lost control of the world and handed up the authority to Satan who became the the god of this age. Or the prince of this world. And we as humans have never really celebrated that dominion over earth that we were supposed to be enjoying. Have you ever wondered how it worked? In in Adam exercising his dominion before sin came into the world, God brought him the animals and he named them. Have you ever figured out the logistics behind that? How God could just get the animals to parade past Adam and Adam had the intellect to be able to name all of them. It's amazing stuff. But in fact, sin really broke it all down. Humanity became slaves to sin and death. We can't control the world, we struggle just to control ourselves. Yeah. I mean honestly, I, you can't even control your own lusts and urges and appetites and struggling with dieting. We live at so far lower a level than God even gave to Adam when he gave Adam stewardship over creation. And this is the truth. We can't control the world. It's never going to be, in a sense, in our hands again without Jesus. It's never... In humanism and the, and the environmentalists, they can lie in the road, they can throw paint bombs, they are not going to save the earth. I don't care what kind of a nature-loving tree-hugger you are. You're not going to save the earth on your own. You will need Jesus. Are you supposed to want to save the earth? Yes, because God made us to have dominion, to rule for good, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to, to bring out its potential. All of this was in the design of man. We were supposed to create a beautiful world that would bring glory to God. So to whatever extent you can do good to nature, feed animals properly care for them farm well build beauty around you we're supposed to do that but can we win back a happy world bring back peace on earth see the end of poverty do away with injustice on our own we can't even control ourselves we can't even rule over ourselves So without Christ, the environmentalists are doomed to fail. But in Christ, the believer is destined to win. In Christ, the believer cannot lose. And this is what Jesus' humanity was about. Jesus came, he became a man, that he might suffer and die for man's sin and restore the dominion that was lost because of sin. He came as a man to defeat the enemy, Satan, and when Jesus walked on the earth, he demonstrated that he had dominion. He faced temptation at the launch of his ministry. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted in every way. And yet he didn't sin. He was like tempted with pride and glory and honor. He was tempted by his stomach to turn rocks into bread. He was tempted in with his eyes because he was shown all of this And the devil who had the right to it said you can have it now without the cross and jesus said no i'm going to the cross because i'm going to win it back on my terms jesus came and he didn't sin as a man he didn't sin so as a man he was saying i'm going to be the perfect adam the first adam failed i'm not going to fail and he didn't and so when jesus walked the earth we see that he had dominion. Can you believe the, the extent to which this is literal and specific in the Word of God? Matthew 17, verse 24. We're going to see that Jesus has dominion over fish. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, a coin, money. Man, if only the prosperity preachers had this formula. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. You can pay both our temple tax or whatever tax this is. And so what you see happening here is Jesus doesn't even go to the dock, to the jetty. He doesn't pick up a fishing rod. He just says, Peter, go go catch a fish and the first fish you catch is going to have a coin in its mouth. And it does. And then you all know the story of the, the disciples when Jesus called them. They were fishing all night and they caught nothing, and Jesus said, Take your boat out to the deep and cast your nets out another time and they said, Ah, oh, come on, we're tired. He said, Shut up.
1: Just do what I say. I'm paraphrasing.
0: That's what I would have said. They went out to the deep and they came back with their nets so full of fish they nearly sank the boat. So, can you get it? Jesus has dominion over fish. Okay, what about the birds of the air? In Luke 22, verse 34, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. What happened? Time passed. The rooster was. uh, couldn't crow because Jesus has dominion over the birds, over the fowl, and then Peter denies Jesus three times and then the rooster gets its voice back. This is incredible. That's dominion. Adam blew it, man. He could have had this anyway. Over the wild bees, I'm, I'm I'm loosely interpreting a world before sin. I have no clue how Adam's dominion really worked out over the animals. but Jesus had dominion over the wild beasts and the domesticated beasts. In Mark chapter 1, verse 12, I'm going to read a little passage here just for fun. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. what's the point there jesus didn't get killed by wild beasts in the wilderness now those of you who understand maybe wild beasts in madagascar we generally don't have any clue but if you were in east africa you wouldn't go out in the serengeti on your own for 40 days you would be lion food anyway so the point is he he goes out there and wild beasts are around and there's no risk because jesus has dominion in mark verse 11 we read about them coming to jerusalem mark 11 verse 1 now when they drew near to jerusalem on Bethphage and bethany that's where they're coming to at the mount of olives jesus sent two of his disciples he said go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it you will find a cold tied on which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it if anyone says to you why are you doing this say the lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him, They told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. Who allows somebody to come steal their car? It's like, okay, take the car. It's like, yeah, we found the car. We're just taking it. Jesus asked for it. He's going to use it. These guys are like, okay, take it. This donkey, colt, whatever it is, has never been ridden on. It's never been sat on before. They're probably like, yeah, you try that. Yeah, take it, let's see what happens. It's never been broken in, it's never been used for this job. Anyway, they say, go take it. And they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So he rides this thing. So firstly, he knows where it is, it submits to him. It's there when it's supposed to be there. It comes. They bring it. He gets on it. He rides it. No one else sat on this thing before. The whole picture here is that Jesus never has any difficulties. Not with roosters crowing. Not with fish in the sea. Not with donkeys. Now you try that yourself. It's not going to work out like that. So that's that's Jesus showing that he has dominion over the things of the earth that Adam originally had. But he is the second Adam And he is perfect in every way and he's also God most high who's risen and he's in all authority and so he has everything under his feet not just the physical creation i'll read from ephesians chapter 1 verse 16. i do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers that the god of our lord jesus christ the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So there's the picture of Christ, but it's linked to the church. It's the picture of his dominion, but he is the head and we are the body. So the idea that the writer wants you to see, or Paul wants you to see in Ephesians, is that we are actually destined for that reigning that Christ is doing now. That we as people are not going to just rule over the earth, but we're going to rule over all things in Christ, in Christ, under Him, as our head. And to see the importance of this bodily resurrection, this idea that Jesus was human and how He wins it for us, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, reading through to verse 28 firstly. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So there's more to come. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, you and I know that in our hearts, we know that the, 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 we, we're going to die. We're not immortal, we're not inherently eternal. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. At his coming, you and I who belong to Christ are going to live. We're going to be raised. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The devil, the demons, the enemies of God, the corrupt and wicked, destroying, bloodthirsty people of earth. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we've already seen Jesus has victory over death because he's risen. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God, Himself is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him, Christ. In other words, it's not saying that the Son is going to put the Father in subjection to Him. It's saying that the Father gave Christ to put authority to put everything else under His feet, and then Christ presents everything to, to the Father. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. And then a bit later in 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 45, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, that's a reference to Adam's very name, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's the life you and I experience now. In the flesh, we under the curse of sin. We get tempted and we fail. We know that we're mortal and we will die. It's that sense of the, the Adamic side of our lives we understand very well. We know that we are sinners. We know that... Um, We're living in a broken world. We know that we're weak. We're made of dust. God knows that we are just clay. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven. Notice man of heaven. His his humanity, he came and took on flesh, but he came from heaven and he now sits in heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's beautiful. That's much, much, much more than ruling over creation. That's ruling with Christ in Him, under Him. That's looking to a time where angels and demons will be of a lower order than you and me as we are in Christ in eternity. Well, how do you get these benefits if you're not a Christian, you need to be in Christ. I thought of how Pharaoh, when God sent Moses, Moses was born and as at that time something spectacular was going to happen. And Pharaoh tried to kill the Hebrew babies. And Moses escaped being killed because he was put in that little basket and he was on the water and he got rescued. And he ended up growing up in Pharaoh's household. And later he has a showdown with Pharaoh and takes all God's people out of Egypt. Those who lived to inherit this deliverance, we know they had to be under the blood of the Lamb. We know that when Moses was told by God to lead his people out of Egypt, they had to do the Passover before the final judgment that God put against the Egyptians. And all those that Moses ultimately led out of Egypt were the ones who had put uh, the blood of the lamb on the lintel and the doorposts. It was the Passover meal. And they were spared the death that came to all the others, and then they exited Eventually, Pharaoh capitulated and he said, Take the people of God and leave Egypt. Moses led them out. Now, Herod, when he heard that the king of the Jews was expected to be born, he tried to kill all the babies in that region. You see, at that time, this was the devil who was afraid of losing his rule, his grip, his authority. And Herod as a human king afraid of losing his kingship work together. The devil pushes Herod to try and kill the baby Jesus fled to Egypt and he grew up came back and grew up in this world and Rather than just taking a select prize of Hebrews from Pharaoh Jesus comes and he says I'm taking my bride from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. So God came from heaven, He lived on earth under the attempts of the enemy to destroy Him, even when He was born, as Jesus was born as a baby. Moses is just a foreshadow of the limited expression of the salvation that God was going to bring. So God covenanted with Israel, used Moses, grew up in the house of Pharaoh. The actual true fulfillment is Jesus, who came from heaven to earth, grew up as a human, in the house of the devil, if you like, under the the broken world, was not killed either as a baby, overcame, confronted Satan at the cross and through death, overcame and is now risen from the dead and he says, I'm taking you, just like Moses. The only way you get to go though, is if you're under the blood of the Lamb. And that is basically just saying, Jesus, your blood shed for me. I want in, I want that in my life. And so when we come as believers and we take that simple step, before we get saved, we say, I want Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb for me. And we're saying that verse nine of Hebrews chapter two, he tasted death for everyone. You're saying, I want Jesus' sacrifice to be for me. The end result is that then Jesus comes and he leads you, like Moses leading God's people out of Egypt. Jesus leads you out of this fallen world into his dominion, into his kingdom. So I still live here with you, and it doesn't look like that, does it? I mean, it doesn't look like we're reigning in glory. But the question is, what happened with Moses? It was certain Israel got out Jesus for certain is taking us out and taking us in to his kingdom. And so when we look at Jesus, he's won this dominion for us as a human being. He came as a man, as a second Adam. He did everything right and in Christ we as human beings can now ultimately be rescued and go to be reigning in glory with him. What a victory Jesus has won for us. What a salvation. It's only possible because Jesus took on flesh and represented us through every step. From being born without sin, living a sinless life, dying in our place, he is then resurrected as the first fruits, and he's gone ahead of us into glory. But here's the exact demonstration of where we are going to go if we are here.